Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2. And we want everybody to have a Bible. So these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one. Just get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. It's marked at Genesis 2, but Genesis 2 is right at the beginning, so you can probably find it. On April 28th of this year, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments in a case titled Obergfell versus Hodges, more popularly known as the same-sex marriage case. During that argument, Justice Anthony Kennedy said, The definition of marriage as between one man and one woman has been with us for millennia. And it's very difficult for the court to say, Oh, well, we know better. But within two months, the same Justice Kennedy would write the majority opinion in a 5-4 ruling handed down just nine days ago that makes same-sex marriage a constitutional right across the country, one that cannot be abridged by any state. In so doing, he did precisely what he had earlier said it would be difficult for the court to do. Say we know better. In his written opinion, Kennedy said, The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all its dimensions. And so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. We know better. And that decision in just the last two weeks was the culmination of a change in American attitudes toward morality and toward human autonomy that is crystallized in a stunningly swift fashion. As recently as 1986, the Supreme Court ruled that states could outlaw sodomy, that is, homosexual behavior. And of course, if they could outlaw homosexual behavior, then they obviously could outlaw homosexual marriage, as all 50 states did. But in 2003, the court reversed that ruling with Justice Kennedy writing the majority opinion. And for all its history, the military had refused to enlist open homosexuals, citing problems with unit cohesiveness if enlisted men and women are forced to share a bunkhouse with someone who practices same sex. During the 1990s, President Bill Clinton ordered that policy change to something that many of you have heard of called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So instead of the military asking the question of applicants, they would no longer ask at all, but they still reserved the right to dismiss anyone who openly identified as a homosexual. That policy lasted through the administration of George W. Bush until the election of Barack Obama, who changed the military's policy to, for the first time in history, allow openly gay persons to gain entry into the military. Candidate Obama campaigned in 2008 as one who was against same-sex marriage. When he got into office, the administration said his views of marriage were, quote, evolving. And it was the Obama administration that announced that it would not, would not defend in the federal courts a duly enacted law passed by Congress in 1996 called the Defense of Marriage Act. The Defense of Marriage Act for federal purposes, defined marriage between one man and one woman, and it allowed states to refuse to sanction or recognize same-sex marriages. Now, in 1996, that law was, uh, that bill was signed into law by President Bill Clinton, 
But in the years after that, he said it was a mistake. And Bill Clinton said it should be overturned, and he bequeathed to a later administration, the Obama administration, to get it done. Which they did just two years ago, when the Supreme Court ruled in another 5-4 decision that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional. Justice Anthony Kennedy again wrote the majority opinion. As you can see, this matter has moved very swiftly in the political and legal worlds, and also in the psychiatric world. Some of you are familiar with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM as it's called. It's DSM and its various versions that applies labels to behavior, labels that become household terms within just a few years. DSM is very influential. And until 1973, DSM defined homosexuality as a mental disorder. And even in 1973, it did not remove homosexuality entirely from the manual. It simply changed the diagnosis from a disorder to something called sexual orientation disturbance. In fact, it was not until 1987 that homosexuality completely disappeared from the DSM. The removal of homosexuality from the psychiatric canon, as one author has said, has undoubtedly facilitated the rights of those who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Adoption rights, same-sex marriage, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell would never have occurred if homosexuality continued to be seen as the developmental endpoint of deep psychopathology. And all of this has happened very, very quickly. Within the lifetime of just about everyone in this room, we have moved from a society with an adherence to traditional Christian values to a post-Christian culture to the, the beginning now of the brave new world that Algis Huxley predicted in his book by that name. And now into the world that Christian thinkers have been warning about for a good while. The late Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote in his seminal work, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. And he said, If there is no absolute moral standard, then one cannot say in any final sense that anything is right or wrong. By absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which provides a final and ultimate standard. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals. And if there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. And that's where we are. The psalmist asked the question in Psalm number 11. When the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? And the psalmist asks that question, verse number three, at the beginning, toward the beginning of that psalm. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? But then in the very next verse, answers that question as we must answer it. In verse number four, remember, the Lord is still in his holy temple. And the Lord is on his heavenly throne. And Anthony Kennedy does not reign supreme. But God Almighty does. And so today, as we take a kind of topical detour, sort of, 
from our series through the book, the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. We're going to be reminded of that. How should we as Christians see and react to what's happening in our world, in particular in the last couple of weeks with what has been evidenced by the Supreme Court ruling? The answer that we're going to see is that we will face this brave new world with great confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in the God who has called us to be his ambassadors and to carry out his cause in a perverse generation. In fact, that phrase, a perverse generation, is a quote from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, describing the conditions in the first century Roman Empire. So please understand, friends, though America is entering, to be sure, into a new era, none of this is new to human history, and it's certainly not new to God. So let's ask God to help us as we contemplate what to do. Father, we thank you again for the extreme privilege of being here, to be able to open your book, to have the freedom to do so. Lord, our hearts are troubled. By the signs we see of increasing decay all around us morally. And yet, Lord, this is not new in our day. It's not new to human history. It's not new to you. And your book has given us instructions for how we ought to view all things, the lens through which we ought to see our world, and then how we are to act and react. So we ask you to grant us sober thinking and open hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what is that foundation that is being destroyed? Well, we've been going through these opening chapters in the book of Genesis, and we arrived in chapter 2 last week. And in chapter 2, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, it's an elaboration on day number 6 of the creation week in which God created the first man and the first woman. And so we will see that in the coming weeks. But then at the end of chapter 2, God takes this first man and this first woman whom he has created, and he brings them together in the first marriage. Marriage is God's idea. And if you look at verse 20 of Genesis 2. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's the foundation of marriage. The opening chapters of the word of God. And God made one woman for one man. And his ideal is for one lifetime. From Genesis 2 and the establishment of marriage by God himself. To our White House hosting an annual reception for the LGBT community. That is the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community. Which they did two weeks ago. We've come a long way, baby. And I say in the outline that we've inserted in your program, the outline for today's message. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take a look at it. And the first thing I want us to think about together is the fact that we as Christians are concerned. We are concerned. 
I received a number of messages after that uh, Friday, the 26th, the June 26th decision by our Supreme Court nine days ago of Christians, people in our church and outside of our church who are concerned. And what are we concerned for? Well, I say in your outline, Christians are concerned for what same-sex marriage indicates about society. We're concerned about a few things, but one of them is what does this indicate about where our society is? Our society has for decades been gradually chipping away at any foundation that would have allowed it to withstand this onslaught of demand for human autonomy from God's standards. That's the reason this has all happened so swiftly, friends. Because for decades we've been chipping away at that foundation. And now when these challenges come, we have no ability to stand in the face of that onslaught. So when the political and legal stars aligned, it should not have surprised us that public opinion would not only not rebel against it, but would quickly fall in line. And society serves a function, the collective opinion and opinions of those in a society at a given time serves to approve and disapprove particular actions and behaviors. And that has shifted monumentally. Acceptance of same-sex marriage has followed acceptance of same-sex behavior in society. And so we are rightly and should be rightly concerned about what this indicates regarding society. And I say in your outline that same-sex marriage indicates some new things. It indicates a new low. Same-sex marriage indicates a new low. Now, you say, really? Is same-sex behavior, homosexual behavior, different from other sins? So that you can say this is a new low? Now, for many of us, the answer to that, many of you may be thinking to yourself, well, no, all sins are created equal. And it is true that any sin keeps us from the presence of an absolutely holy God. Any sin at all creates an infinite gulf between us and the holy character of God. That's all true. And it is also true that every sin of whatever sort requires the blood of Jesus Christ in order to cover it. That's all true as well. But it is not true to say biblically that there are no gradations of sin. And I want to take some time in order to show that to you because I know that comes as a surprise to many. I've even heard it in the last few days. But before we look at a number of biblical passages that indicate that, the Westminster Larger Catechism of 1647, a Protestant catechism, a great statement of Protestant belief, says this, All transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Hmm. I'm indebted to the work of one Dr. Robert Gannon for some of what what follows. Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 20 reorders a list of sexual offenses that are given just two chapters before in Leviticus chapter 18. And it reorders them in Leviticus 20 according to severity of offense and penalty. And in the Old Testament, there is a clear ranking of sins. For instance, in Leviticus 20, which reorders the sexual offenses in chapter 18, according to the severity of offense and penalty, the most severe sexual offenses are grouped first. And among the first-tier sexual offenses 
along with adultery, the worst forms of incest and bestiality, is same-sex behavior. Here's what verse 13 says. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. God is ranking these things. And we will see there are other ways in which that very verse indicates a more heinous nature to this particular sin than many others. But then there are other indications in the Old Testament as well, lots of them. You remember the golden calf incident where the Israelites had come out of Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness, but they fashioned a golden calf as an idol for themselves to worship this calf as an an idol. And the Bible tells us that God's anger burned against them. And here's what the Bible says God said of the Israelites. You have committed, notice, a great sin. And then the law has distinctions between sins that are unintentionally committed and then those that are intentionally and defiantly committed. The book of Numbers, chapter 15, says, If a person sins unintentionally, that person must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. But anyone who sins defiantly blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. And here's why. Because they've despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. The book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, is given a vision above the temple of things that God's people are doing in the temple, idolatrous things that they are doing. And God says to Ezekiel at the time of this vision, see what they are doing, the utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Notice there's detestable and more detestable. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was in one of his regular confrontations with the religious leaders of the day. And he was castigating them for the fact that they tithed of uh, minute uh, 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 spices Dill and cumin and mint. And he was saying, you do all of these things, but you miss larger things. These are Jesus' words. You have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Now, there's a difference between gnats and camels, right? And why would Jesus say that if there's no difference between these offenses? When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he said these words, The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, the entire chapter is about a sorry episode in the church at Corinth in which there was a a very horrible sexual sin that was taking place, an incestuous relationship that was being tolerated by the church. And Paul has an immediate, Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians has an immediate revulsion to that entire thing. The fact that they're tolerating it, but then the sin itself. And 1 Corinthians 5 says this, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So that could go on and on. The Bible is replete with examples of 
some sins being more heinous in the sight of God than others. And so perhaps let's just for the sake of discussion, assume you now agree all sins are not equal in their heinousness. So then the question is, does homosexuality fit into that more heinous category? The answer to that is yes. For a number of reasons. One is this. Homosexuality is listed as a first proof of depravity, of the sinfulness of man in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says this. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It goes on to say in the next verse that God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans chapter 1, many of you are familiar with that chapter, but Paul who wrote that is laying out a treatise that shows that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, every person is sinful. But then in beginning in verse number 18, he begins to show the reasons why God's wrath, God's anger burns against humanity. And he says, God has made himself known in creation and all people have access to information about God. And therefore, all people are without excuse. And then he begins to show the sinfulness, the depravity of humanity. And he starts, number one, with what we just read. Jesus, when he spoke of marriage and the dissolution of marriage in divorce, Jesus went back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2 that we read earlier, that lays the foundation. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, at the beginning of creation, God, quote, made them male and female. That's Genesis 1, 27. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus goes on, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now notice this, Jesus is saying divorce is wrong because it violates a foundational principle. But hear this as well, homosexuality is all the more wrong because it attacks the foundation itself. And that foundation is that marriage is two people, one man and one woman for one lifetime. Same-sex marriage attacks the very foundation of the institution of marriage that God created. Now, we've already made reference to Leviticus 20 that places homosexual practice among first-tier sexual offenses. In Leviticus 18 and chapter 20, homosexual practice is singled out among a list of abominations and is said to be detestable. It alone is said to be detestable before God. Notice what it says. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Chapter 20, as we've already read, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. So that's what the Bible says about sins. The heinousness of different sins. That homosexuality fits in the first tier of those detestable and, and heinous sins. 
That's also been the historic position of the church over centuries. That the Bible understands homosexual practice as an extreme sexual offense. The church father Cyprian in the third century called it an indignity even to see. John Chrysostom referred to it as a monstrous insanity. He called it clear proof of the ultimate degree of corruption. And he called it lusts after monstrous things. Theodoret called it extreme ungodliness. And John Calvin, no slouch when it came to emphasizing universal depravity, nevertheless labeled homosexual practice, quote, the fearful crime of unnatural lust, worse than bestial desire since it reverses the whole order of nature. He called it vicious corruption, a monstrous deed, an abominable act. Now that troubles some of you here, undoubtedly, that God has these more heinous sins. Well, what does that mean then? Does that mean that I'm better than somebody who doesn't, somebody who commits those sins since I don't commit those sins? May it never be. Hear this, friends. You're not better. I'm not better. Only by God's common grace and God's special grace are we better off. We're not better. But God, in his grace, has protected you, protected me, if we're not involved in some of those things, so that we're better off. And logically, we see this distinction, and all of us understand it. Stealing a piece of candy, which I did as a child more than once, I confess. Stealing a piece of candy is, is stealing. But wouldn't all of us acknowledge it less, is a, less of a crime than raping a child? And legally, we see this when we rank crimes as first degree and second degree. So one way that helps me to think about this is we are all equal in sinfulness. We are all depraved and we are all totally depraved according to the Bible. That is all parts of the person, mind, will and emotion, all that make up the components of personhood. Every piece of us is tainted by sin. That's what we mean by total sinfulness, total depravity. And all of us are like that, the Bible teaches. But we are not all equal in corruption. You see, sin has a corrosive and corrupting effect. And homosexuality is a sin that is the result of corruption and corrosiveness. And so then how am I to see this? If God says that this is, this is an indication of the depths of depravity, it's an indication of the depths of depravity that you could be in, that I could be in, but for the grace of God. That being the case then, how am I to view those involved and entangled in this? Well, friends, it's not how you see their sin versus your sin. Their sin, if someone's involved in homosexual behavior, is, is, is a heinous sin before God. A dangerous sin, as God says in his word. But don't look at it primarily as how you see their sin versus your sin. What we need to be careful of is how we see them versus us. We need to be careful that we don't create a there's them and there's us. Because they're doing that and we're not. They are sinners and we are sinners. And they need the same solution as we're going to see at the end of our time together. And so as you view what the person does in the case of homosexual behavior, yes, view their perversity. See it for the sin that it is. See it for the danger that it is. See that perversity. 
but separate that as best you can from how you view your person and their person. We are both sinful before God, and we both need the same grace of God for the solution to that sin. Now, we live in a society that is now promoting homosexual behavior. And homosexuality has to be nurtured in order to be performed. Homosexuality does not come naturally. It has to be nurtured. And so people who have, in the messed up, sinful nature that we all have, that causes all kinds of things to be out of whack, our genes are out of whack, our our worldview is out of whack, and so somebody has out-of-whack desires. But unless that's modeled in front of them, they won't generally act upon those. But now we live in a society that's saying, that's who you are. And you must express who you are. In fact, it would be a crime against yourself not to express who you are. Now, there's no theological problem with seeing the fact that people may be sometimes said born that way. You all have heard that. There's no particular theological problem with that. In that we are all born with a sin nature and we are all born with tendencies towards something or some things that are wrong. So even if they find a homosexual gene someday that proves that folks are born with a particular tendency, God does not hold people responsible for the temptation, but rather for the behavior. But in order to engage in that behavior, one has to overcome both natural law and scriptural law And just until recently, in the last few decades, had to overcome societal mores as well. So Christians are rightly concerned for what same-sex marriage indicates about where we are as a society. Rightly concerned. It indicates society has reached a new low, but I say in your outline as well. It indicates a new frontier. Same-sex marriage is a new frontier. And what I mean by that is... As I said in the opening, we're entering a brave new world. Do you know nobody has ever been where the Supreme Court is taking us? Nobody? No society has ever until now, ever until now, defined marriage as between two same people of the same sex. This is a new frontier. And the courts have not taken the time to determine what this new frontier means. What's this world going to look like? What's it going to mean for children when fatherhood and motherhood are so radically redefined? What is it going to be like for children who grow up in homes where they are told it's okay that there's no father here or that there's no mother here? God Almighty did not design it that way. And yet these children are going to be told that's okay and grow up without a father, and that's a good thing, we'll be told. Those consequences, like the consequences of absentee fathers in our homes already, are going to be disastrous. It's a new frontier. And with the courts now making love the only basis for marriage... Not the ability to reproduce children. Love, yes, but also reproduction. But now making love the only basis, hear this, the pedophile and the polygamist can make their case. 
because we love each other too. And the court's opinion used the number two, T-W-O, over and over again, two people. There's nothing in the logic of that opinion, nothing, that would limit it to two people. Why not three? Why not four? Friends, we've entered this brave new world, and it is unchartered territory, a new frontier. So Christians are rightly concerned about what recent events indicate about our society. It's a new low. It's a new frontier. But I say in your outline as well, Christians are concerned about what same-sex marriage indicates about government. About government. And what this indicates about our government is this. Our government is now completely unmoored from natural law or the Constitution. Natural law itself dictates against homosexual marriage and homosexual behavior. Romans chapter 1 says that. That's why all societies have had laws against homosexual behavior. That's why Justice Kennedy could say for millennia, a millennium is a thousand years, guys, and millennia is plural thousands of years for thousands of years. The reason that societies would say that is because it's a violation of natural law. What this indicates about our government is it's completely untethered now to natural law or I might add the Constitution. And so the government doesn't see now, unmoored from that, untethered to that, a compelling interest on the part of the state to protect marriage. The foundation of society. What it indicates about our government is our government has abdicated its responsibility. So Christians are rightly concerned about what same-sex marriage indicates. But you know, we can be concerned about lots of stuff. I said last week, and you've heard me say over the years, that all of us have our circle of concern, but then there's our circle of responsibility. And our circle of concern is always much larger than our circle of responsibility. I can be concerned about things, but not have direct responsibility for those. What you and I need to be most concerned about are those things that God says we're responsible for. And that's what I have secondly in your outline. Christians are concerned, but Christians are also responsible. Christians are responsible, according to the Bible, for a few things. And in particular, in light of all that's happening now. The first one of those is prayer. Christians are responsible for prayer. First Timothy chapter 2 says this, Petitions, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving should be made for kings and all those in authority. Oh, dear friends, we've got to pray for our government. We're going to see in just a little bit what it is we pray about for our government. But right now, the point is that 2,000 years ago when that verse was written, it was necessary for God's people to pray for kings and all in authority. And it is certainly true for us now. Christians are responsible for prayer. But secondly, Christians are responsible for persuasion. Persuasion. And I say persuasion because that is going to be the front upon which this battle is primarily, primarily, not only, but primarily going to be waged. We are going to have to win the battle of, for hearts and minds of people. We are going to have to convince people that God's way is the right way. 
We're going to have to show people that the gospel way is the right way. We're going to have to model that in the way our families are modeled. And hear this. One of the things that prepared the way for same-sex marriage was the decades-long assault upon marriage that is divorce. Marriage has been so cheapened for many decades. This was simply the next step. Christian people are going to have to uphold God's God's standard for marriage overall, not just over against same-sex marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. We are going to have to be responsible then for persuasion. And then thirdly, I say, for politics. Politics. Persuasion and prayer are first. I have these in this order. Politics is not first. But politics is not absent. We must be responsible citizens then. And some have asked, well, what difference does this decision make practically for Christians, for churches? Let me just quickly give you an idea. You know, many of you know, that nonprofits, including churches like ours, including Christian institutions like Christian colleges, are tax-exempt. Tax-exempt. That tax exemption is going to be in great jeopardy, great jeopardy. Because now there is a constitutional right to same-sex behavior and same-sex marriage. So now our daycare hires people. And someone applies. Are we able to discriminate against something that is a constitutional right, according to our government? That battle will be fought. Someone asked me the question, well, why would anyone apply at our daycare if they don't believe the stuff we believe? (laughs) In order to test it. That's how. Happens all the time. A same-sex couple will go to a Christian college and they will want to stay in the married dormitories and they will be denied. And that will go to court. And that institution risks losing its tax exemption. I will tell you, that one of the good things that I foresee coming out of this, with all of that difficulty, if the day comes, and it may well come, it may well come, that we lose our tax exemption. Bring it on. God's on the throne. Bring it on. We will still do God's work. Money will not keep us from doing God's work. And the government will not hold over our heads the withholding of tax benefits. We will still do God's work work. And here's one of the good things that will happen. It will begin to separate the nominal Christians from the real Christians. As we move into this brave new world and our government becomes increasingly secular and hostile toward Christianity and the church, it will separate the nominal Christians from the real Christians. And frankly, that's a good thing and long overdue. Government is supposed to promote good and to punish evil. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 13. The one in authority is God's servant for your good. They are also agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And so that's why we're to pray for them. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 2 says pray for kings and all those in authority. But then Paul who wrote that goes on to explain why we pray for them. So that they will be this kind of government so that a larger purpose can be achieved. Here's what the following verses say in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for those in authority. 
so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, why do we want to live peaceful and quiet lives? Just so we can work our 30 years, 40 years, have our retirement, move to Florida and live happily ever after and then go see Jesus in the great by and by. Is that what it is? No. Pray for those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And this is good, he goes on to say, and pleases God our Savior. Here's why. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Why do we pray for kings and those in authority so that we will have the peace and the security and the ability to carry out the gospel so that people can be saved? That's why. It's for the sake of the gospel. Let me say, as we talk about politics then, praying for that to happen, but interacting as necessary with our government to appeal to them respectfully, as we see the Apostle Paul doing several times in the book of Acts toward the Roman authorities, we're going to find ourselves having to do that same kind of thing. It's a good and right thing to do. But related to all of that is this, friends. How you vote matters. I'm almost done, but stay with me. I've tried to tell you this. I've tried to tell you this without waxing overly political for years now. But friends, if this doesn't show you that how you vote matters, nothing will. You see, this decision was made five to four by the Supreme Court of the United States, nine justices. Do you all remember how justices get on the Supreme Court? They are... They are appointed by the president, but they have to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And do you remember I mentioned Anthony Kennedy's name several times? Just stay with me for a moment as I remind you how Anthony Kennedy got on the court. From 1980 to 1988, Ronald Reagan was president. President Reagan was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices. Supreme Court justices are on the Supreme Court for a lifetime tenure. So the only way they're ever replaced is if they die or they retire. During his eight years, three retired. He was able to replace them. 1981, he replaced one retiring justice with Sandra Day O'Connor, first woman on the Supreme Court. 1986, he nominated Antonin Scalia to the court, first Italian-American to ever be on the court. He was confirmed by the Senate 98 to 0. Now, the reason he was confirmed 98 to 0 is, one, because he was the first Italian-American, and that was a milestone. But the other reason is this. He was one conservative replacing another conservative. But one year later, 1987, two things happened. One was, in the election of 1986, the Democrats took over the U.S. Senate. The Senate had been in control of the Republicans from 1980 to 1986. You had a Republican president in Ronald Reagan. In 1986 election in November of that year, the Democrats took over the U.S. Senate. The following year, there was another retirement, but this retirement would replace now a liberal with a conservative. And it would change the balance of the court. And some of you remember who President Reagan nominated, Robert Bork. The democratically controlled Senate rejected his nomination. The Reagan administration appointed another man, Douglas Ginsburg, not related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Douglas Ginsburg, another conservative. 
His nomination lasted for two days. It lasted for two days because they discovered that just two years earlier, he had smoked marijuana with his law students at Harvard. They withdrew his nomination. Now the administration is flailing, having had one go up in flames rejected, having had to withdraw another. Now they're looking for somebody who can get through the democratically controlled Senate. And guess who got nominated? And that's how we got Anthony Kennedy. Five years later, 1992, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, a Supreme Court case. An opportunity for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. 19 years after it was first decided. And that decision came down five to four with Anthony Kennedy in the majority upholding Roe versus Wade. And now these many years later, Anthony Kennedy has written the decision in Lawrence v. Texas in 2003 that made homosexual behavior something that cannot be barred. It's a constitutional right. And now within the last couple of weeks, friends, I am telling you how you vote matters. Now, finally, with homosexuality being this expression of depravity that God sees as we've seen from scriptures, detestable and so on, but it doesn't mean we hate the people. Far from it. We see our own sin as keeping us out of God's heaven, any sin, one sin. And the only reason we are not more corrupt than we are is because of the grace of God. But for the grace of God, so go we. All of that is true. And I want to say this in closing. There may be people in this room right now who struggle with same-sex temptation, attraction. There may be people in this room who have committed the acts that we have read about in God's Word. So what about you? I want you to understand, friends, that the blood of Jesus covers every sin. Every sin. No matter the severity of the sin, no matter what we have done, no matter how many times we have done it, the blood of Jesus covers every sin. Here's what the Bible says. In the New Testament, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves. And by the way, I'm a thief. Remember I said I stole? Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, it's left there. (laughs) We're hopeless. Thanks be to God it continues. And that is what some of you were. But you are washed. And you are sanctified. And you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So any person with any sin, with any amount of that sin, can and must come to the cross of Jesus to be washed, to be sanctified, To be justified. Understand, dear friend, there is hope for you at the cross of Jesus. So our take-home truth is this. Christians should respond to the government's irresponsibility with gospel responsibility. 
And you see, I have responsibility. We have the ability to respond. We have the responsibility and the ability to respond. But with what do we respond? Our primary tool is the gospel itself. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for your word that is our guide, our absolute guide. We thank you that because we have the word of God, we do not have to flail about in the darkness, wondering what is right and what is wrong and what your purposes are for us in your world. But Lord, we live now in a generation that has abandoned the foundations. And so what shall the righteous do? Oh Lord, we lift our eyes to you. We look to you and we look to your word. We ask for your aid to help us to be people who are not hypocrites in any fashion who live out the tenets of your word in our families and in our neighborhoods. And by prayer and by persuasion, may the hearts and minds of those that you bring in our circle of influence be won over to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be responsible citizens. May we understand clearly how you view abominable acts and yet at the same time be able to show the love of Jesus to everyone caught in those traps. By your spirit, we ask you, Lord, to move in Trenton and beyond, to bring people to yourself. And through that means, may you be pleased to see other people placed in positions of responsibility in our government so that our society can be re-persuaded to follow the tenets of the true and living God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.